0: Bloody Elbow presents the Level Change Podcast, a combat sports variety show that brings you analysis, fight breakdowns, and insightful discussion of MMA's biggest headlines. Here are your hosts, Steffi Haynes and Victor Rodriguez.
1: Welcome back, and thank you for listening to episode 209 of the Level Change Podcast. I'm Steffi Haynes, and I'm joined, as always... By my amazing co-host Victor Rodriguez, and today we'll be discussing Michael Chandler's surprising take at his fishhook of Dustin Poirier, Paulo Costa wisely holding out for more money before signing a new contract, Drew Dober versus Bobby Green, and more. But first, I want to start today off by asking a question that we will both give our answers to at the end of this show so victor i'm gonna ask you right now what is the fight from 2022 that you're most thankful for that you got to watch and think about that from now until the end of the show and then we'll we'll give our our answers so anyways victor how are you today
2: I am good. I'm horribly underslept, but uh, I'm looking forward to uh, what is to come. We're recording this right before Thanksgiving. I've got my cranberries boiling on the stove with the tangerine rinds, mm-hmm. and uh, I- I'm 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 getting ahead of some of the work here. And instead of doing the usual thing where people try to cook the the turkey whole, I'm trying to actually section it off first so I can use the carcass for some stock and then uh, use that as the base for both the dressing and the gravy. I'm having a great time. I did some mad scientist planning and it's like – this is like planning a bank heist every year. It's like, okay, how do I do this and maximize it so I can fit it in this one window, right, so I can just knock everything out in about three or four hours and I think I got the formula down. So daddy's doing it and you'll see photo evidence of the whole deal hopefully on Instagram if I don't forget because I'll probably be even more tired by the time I'm done.
1: Oh, don't make me text you uh, several times (laughs) just to make sure we get those pictures. Now, I do want to give you a little fun thing to chew on for a second here before I dive right into the news. Have you seen that Artem Lobov is suing Conor McGregor because he supposedly did a napkin deal? Now, I'm going to I'm going to remind everybody of the original napkin deal in just a moment but Artem Lobov says that they were at dinner and he scribbled down on a napkin the, the words proper number 12, and that is where proper number 12's name was born and that he feels that he carried the weight, the brunt of the brainstorming, et cetera, and that Connor should pay him money. Now, if we go back in our mind palaces, just, you know, a few months ago, Artem Lobov was telling the same story, but saying that he didn't feel like it was worth any money, that he was doing that for a friend. But clearly somebody reached out to him and said, yo, if there's if there's some legs underneath this story, if you've got someone at that same table that saw you do that. Maybe we have a lawsuit and here we are. I gotta remind everybody of one other thing. The original napkin deal. So Lorenzo Fertita is in a meeting with the the bigwigs, I believe at Spike. And they do the deal, the spike deal for Tough, basically on a napkin. They're talking, they, Lorenzo's uh, putting forth his ideas, etc., blah, blah, blah. It was all done on the back of a napkin. Uh, they, they both signed it, blah, blah, blah. And that is how Tough was born. So basically, Artem Lobov is kind of coattailing on the original napkin deal. So what do you think of that, Victor? What do you think of Artem Lobov at at first saying, you know, it was no big deal? You know, it's what anybody would do for a friend to where we're at today with a full-fledged lawsuit.
2: I just find it so unfortunate. You know, I I don't like seeing friendships being broken up over stuff like this. I mean, I would imagine I, I get... And respect the initial position, if it is indeed the way Artem stated it, that is like, hey, man, listen, you know, I did something good for my friend. He's already making money hand over fist, but now he's got, you know, a whole lot more money. And I was a part of that. But then you're like, yeah, but now now you're on the outside looking in. You know, he didn't even bother to break you off as a thank you. That, that that there was no there was no other uh, form of any display of gratitude in terms of, hey man, this wouldn't have happened without you. Let me make you a partner even at a smaller capacity. Something. It doesn't appear to be the case because he wouldn't be suing right now, now would he? And that's really where I feel is it's even – even worse, I feel like somebody probably talked Artem down and said, hey, man, listen, um, you know, not only did you help broker this and, and hand this whole thing to him and his manager, Audiotar, whom I should remind you all is a partner as well in terms of this whole um, proper 12 business. I, it just it's it's unfortunate. And it's like I don't even feel so much like. I don't feel bad for Connor. He's got the money. He can pay Artem. In fact, he should. And he ought to. Although whether or not Artem presents things that are legally binding, right, evidence that is admissible in a court of law to a degree that would grant him some sort of a uh of of, of some some kind of remuneration. I, I i don't know I, I don't know what that looks like uh where is this suit being filed i didn't check up on that i don't know if that's going to be filed in the, here in the u.s or over in ireland i it it just doesn't it's such a bad look you know now artem looks like uh, the the resentful jilted friend Who's kind of been left behind? Who's done so much? And then Connor's looking like the guy who just took advantage of this guy and didn't even, as a cursory uh, gesture of gratitude, just give give that little something, you know, buy him a Porsche, or something. He ain't even got to buy him a Volvo do something something put something in his pocket man just <laughs> just do something but we didn't see that because again we wouldn't have had anything this would not be happening i would like to think because artem lobov has many things but he's not demonstrated himself to be a liar maybe he might not be you know he, he's not uh someone that i would confuse with a genius but he's not an idiot and he he just seems like someone who would have mentioned yeah you know at some point you know there was some consideration for this or he also helped out with this you know he would have told that story when he told the other story about how he did this for his friend as a favor as a kindness and what does he get in turn he gets nothing well then in that case if that's what it takes for this friendship to dissolve then so be it but i think that the fair thing again if uh everything is in line for Lobov and he is telling the truth, that uh, he should get something with that. Now, I would imagine that McGregor is going to be armed to the teeth with his lawyers. Uh, he's going to have a very strong backing and support that will work and just fight tooth and nail to ensure that he doesn't have to pay anything out. And if anything, he'll probably have to pay out some form of a settlement that will be minuscule in comparison to what Lobov would actually be owed uh, if everything that he's saying is correct and, and, and accurate. But Other than that, man, what can you really do? What really can you do in this situation?
1: Yeah. And uh, to my point about which executives it was, I was wrong. It wasn't Spike TV. It was the Viacom TV executives. And I quote, and this comes from Fertita. This comes straight for this a quote from Lorenzo Fertita. We cut a long term deal that night on the back of a napkin. So the original napkin deal, as far as MMA goes, because I'm sure there's many other business deals that were brokered over the back of a napkin. But in MMA, the most famous one is this one. So here's Artem and. To me, Artem seems like someone that can be led around by the nose because I don't think he did this quote as a favor. I think they were all sitting around. Connor says he's going to start a a liquor brand or that somebody has approached him to be the face of a liquor brand. They're looking for a name. Everybody's sitting around spitballing and Artem's Artem's writing down different names and stuff and boom, he lights on proper number 12. I don't think that's a favor. I think that's happenstance. If this goes to court, which it might not, because Connor's lawyers will probably lay it down thusly. It's already said and admitted that. I was his friend and he didn't need compensation. That's what's yeah. going to open and close this case really, really fast is that he's already said publicly in interviews that it was no big deal. He's my friend. I would do it for free for all of my friends. Yeah. You know, something to that effect. And that's, that's what's going to kill this thing. But anyways... Mm-hmm. We do have some real news to discuss, so I'm going to jump right in with the first story. And boy, it's a doozy. Michael Chandler, um, he makes some valid points in this interview that he did on the MMA Hour, but he also makes it real hard to like his valid points. So I'm going to quote, and this is all about fish hooking. Specifically, the fish hook that he very much applied to Dustin Poirier and says that it was accidental. And the way he lays it out here, maybe it was. I might have been quick to judge him on this, but let me just read what he said. People think that we're in there making decisions like me making the decision to pick up this pen. It's not the same when you're actually inside the confines of MMA and you're fighting for your life. You're reaching for things, you're grabbing for things, you're grappling. A lot of it is muscle memory. When I take a guy's back and I've drilled it a million times, I take a guy's back, I reach down, I grab the chin, I lift the chin, and then I go for the choke. So yes, do I think I need to apologize? I don't think I do. Do I think it was something that people could say, hey, that was dirty or hey, that was illegal? Yes, I could definitely see what you're saying, but 31 fights, you know my reputation. I've got a good reputation in this sport. I love the sport. I don't cheat the sport. I don't cheat to win. This one was just unfortunate circumstances and a chain of events that I wish didn't happen, but they did. And also that's why we have referees there. That's why the referee was there with his eyeballs on every single exchange to let you know if you're doing something consciously or subconsciously on purpose or not on purpose. But yeah, it doesn't feel good to be called a dirty fighter. I don't like to hear that because whatever, there are going to be people that say things no matter what, be accused of things, win, lose, or draw. But I love this sport and I would never cheat. It is what it is, and I can't change it aside from I've been here 31 fights, and I love the sport, and I would never cheat intentionally. Now, there's a few things here that we need to break down. First and foremost, he says... That he's done this a million times. He takes the guys back. He reaches down, grabs the chin, lifts the chin. You know what? I can give him that. Uh, the part where he talks about you get in there and everything's happening so fast. I can, I can do that too. He says that Dustin bit down on his fingers and that he would have done the same thing a little later on. Uh, let me let me quote that little bit. He did bite my finger, which isn't cheating because my finger shouldn't have been in his mouth. I think that's when I realized, OK, that's not the chin because he's biting down on my hand.
2: And obviously
1: <laughs> That's when I let go. And that right there. I mean, I can honestly look at this whole situation and think to myself, okay, maybe that's what happened with the fish hook. But when we go back and we look at all of those illegal punches to the back of the head, and there was several of them, there was a point where the ref went in there and grabbed his hand away and told him, "Don't, you're hitting the back of the head, don't hit the back of the head. And what did he do? He immediately, like a two-year-old, that's into a cabinet he shouldn't be in, he goes right back to it and starts nailing him again. Now you've just been told and you go right back to doing exactly what you were told. I cannot forgive that. I might let you pass on the fish hook because of the way you concisely explained it. But there's, there's a few other things in here that require some addressing. One of the things up here he says is that that's why the ref is here. The ref is here eyeballing everything. Well, that ref was clearly not eyeballing everything because he could not see the fish hook. He tried to stop you from hitting to the back of the head and you kept doing it. And then he did nothing more. You never even got a point deducted. So in instances where the referees are clearly not doing their job, you know, Maybe an apology is warranted. When you accidentally bump somebody, when you run up on them with your grocery cart in the store by accident because you weren't paying attention or whatever, what do you do? You say you're sorry because, you know, you weren't paying attention or whatever. You made a mistake. You erred. So you need to apologize. You fool. (laughs) I mean, this is not how you endear your fans to you, especially when so many many of them are calling you a dirty fighter, which you clearly hate. Don't do things and then come back with stupid responses like this and expect everybody to take your side. You make a mistake, you say you're sorry, because that's just common courtesy. I, I don't know what else to say here. Victor, let's get your take on it.
2: I don't really feel like I don't think that Chandler's really understanding why people are truly as upset as they are. I, I don't think he's realizing that he might not perceive that what he was doing was wrong in terms of the. And eh, look, when it comes to sticking fingers in people's mouths and stuff like that, I remember way back when when um, Johnny Hendricks was was making waves, and I think it was either Ben Askren or uh, or Tyron Woodley, maybe it was both of them. They were talking about how like, you know, Oh, that guy would stick fingers in people's mouths all the time. And like, he just wanted to bite his fingers, uh, you know? So he'd stop doing that. And this is like a different thing because this isn't like the fingers are coming in from the side. It's coming in from above. Like he was trying to pry the thing open. This isn't yeah. your usual reach to try to lift up the jaw, the chin to snake your arm under and go for a choke. Um, I think we need to look at his reputation and his time and think, yeah, he has, over the course of his career, been um, as close to exemplary as you basically can can put it I don't think I've seen I I, at least I can't remember him committing fouls on that level even in the heat of the moment and he's had many very very heated moments I don't even remember him poking people in the eye like that I don't either
1: I don't either I mean honestly this is (laughs) I think the reason why it stands out so much and so egregious is because we don't remember him at least you and I don't remember him doing things like that. And and one more thing I wanted to make a point of before I turn it back over to you. Another reason why I'm willing to, I'm not excusing him. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. That is all. Is the fact that there's a lot of padding on the parts uh, in inside the hand, on the fingers to, you know, that first knuckle. But there's padding there. So I'm thinking that maybe with his hands curled, trying to get to the chin, Getting inside the mouth, maybe he didn't feel the teeth because mm. they were mm. on the padding. So mm. I'm trying to do – I'm I'm literally doing gymnastics here to try and give him the benefit of the doubt. And it's really hard to do.
2: Yeah, But I'm, yeah. I'm trying. Figure no, you're, you're, you. your grip on things get real slippery when you start mm. doing this because it's like you yes. want to think better. You want to think that like, well, no, okay, maybe what was going on was this. And look, they were sweaty. They were slippery. They were messed up. They were in. They were in a, a wild, scrambly fight. Things are gonna happen. I get it. But come on, man. Like you, you know better than this. Like I, I don't. I I, I kind of feel like in the moment, what's upsetting me the most is that he's not admitting. Um, that he's wrong to the extent that he perhaps should. And he's not, look, I'm not asking for this guy to whip out a cat of nine tails and self flagellate in front of an audience. I'm not saying that that's what he needs to do, but it's like, you can admit that, like you mentioned, right? Okay. You're not addressing the punches to the back of the head. now, all right. You know, I, I don't, I just, I don't know. I don't I don't know where this this whole um, refusal to look at these points. And I I would imagine also wherever whatever outlet was interviewing him when he when he said this, there was no follow up on that to ask him that other instance of him committing fouls. So um, what I believe we can expect is maybe him. I, I don't know that he's going to be more mindful the next time around. I certainly know that there's going to be a hell of a lot more scrutiny around his performance and what he does and what he doesn't do. So, um, yeah, but at the same time, like, it's what you can get away with. If the ref doesn't stop you, I mean, what are you going to do? Look at how many times John Jones has gotten away with fouling people. You know, he's grabbing onto the cage, poking people in the eye. It's just like, it just, if the refs don't do enough – to curtail that kind of behavior. It's just going to keep on happening. I think the biggest and most shocking thing is the fact that it's happening with this guy.
1: Yeah. And we should address the, the punches to the back of the head to the referee, because he did, pull his hand back and warn him and then he did nothing else when Michael immediately his literally his next punch was to the back of the head and he just stood there and watched so there, there's a little bit of that that uh, aura of I'm gonna keep doing it until he stops me
2: yeah pretty much
1: you know and and that's that's where the ref comes into this too so while we're all pointing at Michael Chandler we should also point at the ref. So Vic, what's our next topic?
2: Well, next topic is actually something that came as a result of an interview with Daniel Cormier when he was talking to Islam Makachev, the current UFC lightweight champion. And this is before um this was this was a, a an interview that happened uh, sometime last month, where the discussion regarding how much it, the the value of the jiu jitsu Brazilian jiu jitsu black belt really is, and what standing that offers you in MMA and in grappling in general. And it turns out that Makachev wasn't really impressed what he was seeing with Brazilian jiu jitsu in terms of how its been, exponents have been representing the martial art. And he had this to say: "quote All these, you know." Chandler, Gaethje, Poirier, referring to people that Oliveira had faced in the past, all these guys have nothing in terms of grappling skill. On the ground, I don't think so. Now, Cormier rightfully had said, well, yeah, but Poirier also has a black belt. He says, yeah, I don't really know. I'm not really too big on that black belt. Who give him that? We have to check that brother and we have to cancel many black belts. They make jujitsu look bad because a lot of guys have black belt. But I don't know, like in terms of skill. Right. Are they really that good? And I got to be honest, man. I mean, this is something that I believe we've addressed. Quite a bit, not probably more than than uh, not 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 as much as I'd like to, but I mean, they, they, they probably sound like a broken record at this point. But not all black belts are created equal. But That's you do right. have some guys that are out there and you're like, look, like Kevin Holland, right? No disrespect to him, but he's what, a brown belt, black belt? Mm-hmm. You don't really see his skills on display in the cage very often. You don't really see him using a lot of the principles that you would expect from someone who has, ooh, the pedigree of a black belt going in there. But, of course, we also need to have the caveat that black belts in jiu-jitsu are simply a measure of proficiency. It does not mean that you have no more capacity to learn. It does not mean that you are the perfect practitioner. It simply means that you have mastered a level. You've become adept enough in this art to be on a higher level, to be on a, on what is essentially – Uh, 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 a prohibitively cordoned off area in terms of skill technique and understanding the mechanics and uh, the flow of the discipline. So uh, we do need to establish that here before we continue, because one of the most notorious black belts in the world, Craig Jones, had something to say about this. He was asked about Makachev's statements. And I mean, it makes perfect sense that you would ask an avid competitor and someone who's been, um, really one of the more exciting and insightful and truly uh, more accessible and affable uh, practitioners in the game. He said, I honestly agree with Makachev when he says a lot of people deserve to have their black belts taken away. I kind of agree with that. I think what those guys, referring to Makachev's crew, are doing is sort of superior to what we've been doing for a long time. We built an entire sport around conceding bottom position. I'm not one of those guys that says we should grapple like people are striking us, but I believe we should grapple like the top guy knows how to pass and pin. A lot of guys are fine being on bottom because they've never rolled with someone who knows how to pass a guy or pin someone. Now, he did want to clarify a little more later on. He said, you know, don't take it literally. I just think saying you're a black belt doesn't hold much weight anymore. And to a degree, I have to basically give him credit here. I think that Craig is absolutely correct. I mean, having a black belt is not the end-all, be-all. I think you can look at it as a principle, as a beginning, as something that you can uh, use as a very strong and solid base, but it doesn't guarantee that you're going to have the submission chops. And even among jiu-jitsu grapplers, there is disparity, right? Frank Mir, one of the greatest submission artists in the heavyweight ranks, said this about Damien Maya. He says, I thought I was a black belt. Now, that guy, that guy is a black belt, meaning he saw that that guy was seeing things that frank wasn't seeing he was moving in ways that were much more not just elegant right but that, that were much more efficient and that he was able to execute his techniques from any point at any moment at any at, at, under any circumstance he was able to get to points that were out of uh any danger and able to pose a threat to his opponent and that kind of ends up happening. You know, if you, what what I think that some people are missing in terms of the reaction that Craig Jones had to this is that he's referring to grappling at large. If you're going to have a jujitsu guy versus a sambo guy and you say, well, I'm going to have the advantage because I'm a black belt. No, that's not quite the thing. That, I mean, look, jujitsu. It's been figured out by a lot of people, right? It's not – what you do in Brazilian jiu-jitsu is not exclusive to Brazilian jiu-jitsu. There are other grappling styles that do similar things like catch wrestling and luta livre and sambo that they've all derived from judo much like the sister art that Brazilian jiu-jitsu has. So it makes sense. That if you were to pit this as a style versus style, if you're looking at this from an ADCC perspective and not just an IBJJF perspective, that, yeah, maybe jujitsu isn't looking so good because we need to look at how other guys are progressing and how they're able to stifle the guys that have been on the mats and doing nothing more than conceding bottom position, as Craig Jones said. So I'm not really mad at this at all. I'm actually kind of glad that uh, such a high-level practitioner was saying this. And I'd like to hear more from other members of the community. But I want to get your take on this, Steph. you think he uh, went a little overboard with this? Or what do you make of his assessment?
1: No, I think he's spot on. But I do think that one thing we need to look at is that when Islam Makachev made the statements, I think he's looking at this more of a lens of guys that have ill-adapted their jiu-jitsu for MMA yeah that's the lens I feel like Islam was looking at this through I don't think he's looking at it as as jiu-jitsu at large I I don't think he's looking at it as specifically the guys that are on the competition circuit and not in uh some promotion MMA promotion so when I think about it in that regard he's absolutely right let me name some some black belts to you that don't actually use their jujitsu. Chris Cyborg, for instance. When's the last time you seen her grapple and 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 involved in serious exchanges? You hardly ever do. Um, That's true. You know, there's a lot of guys and gals out there that have wonderful jujitsu. Let me let me give you another name, Mackenzie Dern. Outstanding BJJ ace, wrestling, unheard of. Takedown defense, absolutely abominable, but she's an amazing black belt. So if Islam is looking at the people that can't figure out how to adapt their amazing black belts to fit their MMA profile, I have to agree with them. And there's a lot of them that we can point at. So I don't mind this statement. I don't mind what Craig Jones says. I think they're both absolutely right.
2: Yeah, there you go.
1: All right, so we have some really awesome fight news. I love this fight so much. Somebody had uh, proposed this a few weeks back, and I thought to myself, that is an incredible fight to make. So Drew Dober, that lantern-jawed superhero good looks guy with hammers for hands, is going to be fighting Bobby Green. And boy, do I like this fight so much because both guys have amazing boxing. And thing is, though, is that one of them has a hammer and the other one does not. You know, Drew Dober has bricks and Bobby Green has technique and volume and a very, very durable chin. And this is going to be a really fun fight. But I, I kind of am leaning a little bit towards Dober in in that regard. I don't know if he'll actually be able to put him away. But I, I'm a little bit leaning Dober. And we have to remember that Bobby Green is coming back after not having fought since I believe it was February when he lost to Islam Makachev. Uh, it was at the very beginning of the year. But in any event. He had a suspension that we learned about in October. And I'm going to quote to you from uh, his interview. I believe it was with Ariel Hawani. But, anyways, he said, I go, what? In 20 years, I've never tested positive for anything in 20 years of my sport. I know drugs, and drugs to me, I've only heard of them coming in needle form. I've heard of them coming in some crazy pill form. And last, like maybe I've heard of some cream stuff of testosterone. So I say, hey, come back, take all the pictures, show them all the bottles. They go, oh, it's that one right there. It's DHEA. That's a banned substance on our list. And you're now in failure, and the fight is off a week before the fight. I'm crushed. I'm like, what the fuck? USADA though, they, they stated that Green cooperated and their official statement corroborates his accounting. And then, and because of that, he received a reduced period of ineligibility. He got a very small suspension and it it was over DHEA. So, which is a common ingredient in tons of over-the-counter supplements but anyways he owned it he made no excuses whatsoever and i i take it back this wasn't in an interview this was released on his social media so that is why bobby's been out for so long (coughs) to come back to drew dober as your first opponent a guy that hits with the the force of a mountain wow that is some heavy stuff um I love it. The difference in their age. Drew Dober is 34. Bobby Green is 36. Victor, are you as excited about this as I am?
2: I don't think I am. I think I'm more excited than you are. Handsome Drew Dober fighting Bobby King Green. Are we serious? Like, Bobby is scrappy. And he's smart, and he's tricky, and he's really hard to look good against, and he's really good at styling on people. is really good at pushing forward, using his wrestling, using his boxing, using hand traps, being able to time his shots. I love this, man. I think this is great. You got two guys that are known for not being boring in a fight where, guess what? They're probably not going to be boring. I mean, you look, you're never guaranteed anything. But – sometimes that's how a lot of these things go and i'm looking forward to it by a lot so yeah good stuff i'm i'm fine with it i have no problem with uh with the matchmaking here i um it's good to see bobby back in and i'm glad that he didn't have any uh any longer suspension any further repercussions as of this he cooperated he did what he needed to do and and uh he was cleared so uh, good i'm fine with that that's great
1: all right so what we got next well, what
2: we have next is um, I'm not I'm not really I'm not really too uh, surprised by any of this. I'm not really thrilled or swayed nor disappointed. But well, uh, it has to do with UFC middleweight Paulo Costa, who he's not entirely certain what the future is going to look like. See, he's already scheduled to fight Bobby Knuckles soon, right Back up in uh, February, so he's got a little bit of time. But the thing is that he just had an interview with AG Fight where he said that he had not signed the contract yet and that he might not even renew it if his company – if the UFC did not come to an agreement that he would find to be more amenable. Uh, He says he wants to stay, but they want – they have a certain set of terms and he's not liking them. Quote, I haven't renewed with the UFC. I had a talk with Hunter. He was supposed to get back to me. I asked him about a figure and he was supposed to give me an answer about it. I haven't gotten an answer yet. Anything is possible. I have one fight left and I'm not very sure. I've got some lawyers looking at the contract, seeing how it works, because it can also be terminated over time. Maybe I don't even need to fight to finish my contract. We need to know how to take care of our stuff in the UFC contract as business. I need to be aware of how it works so I don't make a mistake. I need to make the most out of it. I have one fight left or the time clause. I believe that's it, but I'm still talking to my lawyers. I'd really like if this Whitaker fight could happen, but it's up to the UFC. There's no contract yet. There's nothing. I wish there were a contract up to par to the level of this fight. Okay. Um, two things, all right, just, just for starters. All right, you ready? You, you, you with me here? Let me, let me hold your hand. All right, we're going to take a little walk. You do have a time clause in your contract, which may be anywhere in the neighborhood of two to three years. Number two. You are still, even if you're sitting out and not fighting, the UFC is still offering you fights, which means that your contract remains extended. How do you think they kept Nate and Nick Diaz around for as long as they have without resigning them for large stretches of those time periods? Where do you think that happened? What do you think the root of that is? Why are you saying this out loud before the fight, months away? I've said many times this guy is not – He's not smart at all. I don't think he's um, really looking at this in the proper manner. I understand and I am in favor of people maximizing their value and their worth because if you're bringing in a lot of money for the company, the very least they could do is break you off like what Artem Lobov was trying to look for full circle. But seriously, how the hell does he expect this thing to go? Oh, now he's got his lawyers looking at the contract. Now he's trying to determine what could happen and he thinks he might be able to sit this out. Yeah, go ahead and sit this out. You'll be starving is what you're going to do. By this time next year, you're going to be begging for another fight. You're going to be calling out people that are way far behind you, something you would not have dreamed of doing another, I don't know, three, four years ago. But here we are. These are the circumstances. And the worst part about it is he's saying all this stuff. He's making all this noise. And I don't have any problem with guys putting their foot down and making a public stink over this. What I do have a problem with is them not understanding the circumstances around them and not reading the room in a proper manner. Oh, you think you're going to be okay with it? Hey, look, every time that Conor McGregor says he's retired, which has happened what two or three times already, what does Dana White do? He says, all right cool, no problem. They don't worry about stars. They let Shane Burgos walk. And that's the only guy that I've seen in recent years that the UFC has been like, yeah, man, we probably should have kept that guy. Everybody else is like, well, okay, man, happy trails. Nice, nice seeing you. Uh, we might see you down the line and enjoy yourself because they don't need to worry about loading up the roster. They've got guaranteed ESPN money. They've got buy rates for the pay per views. They can alleviate things and they can take the hit. They are assigning fighters a dime a dozen off contender series and they still got the mulch machine that is the ultimate fighter. What the hell makes you think that someone's going to miss you, Paulo Costa, a guy who hasn't looked that great in recent years and who looks like he's been figured out by pretty much anybody else in the division? Someone who is no indication whatsoever of looking like a truly elite figure, despite being someone who's really good to be in the top five, but nowhere near past breaking into the top three. I might be a little too harsh. I don't know. But do you really – do you disagree with any of this, Stephanie? I mean, do you really think that he's got any leverage whatsoever here? And should he have made this case as public and in this manner the way he did?
1: Yes and yes. I don't know that he could possibly win anything if this ever went to court. But I I like where his mind is at. We have to remember that now. it's, It's not like before with the the Diaz brothers, because now since the antitrust case over the last couple of years, they've included what's called a sunset provision inside the contracts. So they cannot hold you hostage basically in perpetuity. We know for a fact that the last fight on his contract is the Whitaker fight. What he's saying is that he's not going to sign another Contract unless they jack up his money, and he he should be holding out for more money because win, lose or draw, Paulo Costa is a draw, and then now he has really embraced social media and has taken off like a house of fire. This guy will put asses in seats. He's funny. He's good looking. Yes, I know he has the Bolsonaro connection, but you know what, Bolsonaro isn't the president anymore. So we can, we can kind of let that go for a minute here. Okay. Let's just look at this from the contract situation. I think that the UFC will keep him around. I think that he will probably end up getting a bump. I don't know if it's going to be what he thinks he deserves, but I feel like the UFC likes Paulo. And I feel like that they want characters like him around they like the Sean, the Sean O'Malley's. They like the people that embrace social media, know how to use it, uh, and and drum up a quick following. And that's what's happened with Paulo. But as far as the contract thing, I'm, I'm 100% with him. I want them all to hold out like this, I really do. And Paulo's not making any bones about, oh, I'm doing this for all of us or anything. He's very much self-centered in this and doing it for himself. Fine. That's okay by me. He's honest about it. Get after it. I love it. I hope it happens for him. And I do like the fact that he has retained legal counsel that he's not going into this blind and that he's not um representing himself and whatever talks might be happening or whatever. I'm glad he has legal representation. Um I I think it's a good thing. Top to bottom, that long and short of it, I think it's a good thing.
2: Hmm. Okay.
1: <laughs> I do get your point, though, as him thinking that maybe his his value to the company is more than it is. I agree mm-hmm. with you 100% because they are disposable, but I think that they're willing to work somewhat with some of the bigger names and give them bumps. I mean, look at Michael Chandler, look at his record, and they're still setting him up with the biggest fights. He's on, We already know he's on a pretty big contract, that he makes a lot of money. Paulo, however, who has fought for a title before, I mean, I'm imagining that he went right back down to his 60 and 60 purse. And he's definitely worth more than that. And I, I have a feeling that the UFC will probably work something out with him. I hope they do, because man, middleweight is kind of boring. <laughs> Okay, well, it needs Paulo yeah. there. We need Paulo in there. So, anyways, we are gonna move on with our last story, and it's kind of a fun one. It is about Vanessa Demopolis, and she was on the MMA hour and she talked about making the transition from exotic dancing to to MMA and why she gave up exotic dancing, which was the more stable profession for her. She made a a lot more money consistently dancing than she has in MMA. And here's why. And I'm going to quote from the interview. Just so you know, she is talking about balancing both jobs at once because in the beginning she was working both jobs. So it was the worst Staying up late, constant stimulation, overstimulating your nervous system that late at night. I'd get home. I couldn't sleep. My body automatically wakes up so early for training that even if I go to sleep late, I was only getting three hours of sleep because I'd automatically wake up. It just wasn't good for me in a lot of aspects. I have to give a lot of my emotional energy to the job and I just want to focus on fighting. So I took a risk, actually. I really didn't have the money to quit, but I believed in myself enough. And I was like, I'm going to make this happen no matter what. So I burned the bridge and I walked away. And I appreciate that. I think that's an awesome sacrifice that she made i don't know that i would have done that to be in the meat grinder that is the ufc that is mma in general to give up a stable career to go in there and get the tar beat out of you in the process of you trying to do the same thing to your opponent and getting peanuts for it but what got me about this interview was they asked her what it was like physically, the differences physically. And she talked about the worst concussion she's ever suffered. And her worst concussion did not come from a punch. It came from falling off of a pole. And I quote, it hurt like hell. I had the worst concussion I think I've ever had falling off of a pole. I fell straight down. It was almost two stories. I instantly woke up. So I'm assuming that she was upside down and probably fell on her head. She said, I in- instantly woke up and ran. And then I had this giant bag of ice on my head and I fell to sleep on the bag of ice. That's how I knew I had been badly concussed for sure. It's so a worse feeling than anything I have ever felt in fighting. And I'm like, God damn. And this girl, listen, I refer to her as girl because I'm an old lady, but she's 30 freaking four. And I did not know that. I thought she was in her early twenties because of how bubbly and vivacious and just out of control. She is sometimes with her leaping into everybody's arms, but I love her. I think she's adorable. And I like the way that she looked at her fighting career. She believed in herself and burned a bridge. I don't know that that's going to aid her in the future because this sport is so much harder on you than dancing. And it's going to chew you up and spit you out. And what's going to happen is that you might be a little bit too old to go back to dancing. So I hope she makes a lot of money here in the sport and is able to put herself through school or do something that will set her up for later where that, you know, she can support herself later. Victor? I, uh,
2: I I would, uh, I've said before that it's like, well, she kind of left the money and that you would get from that for the instability of MMA. But Kind of looking at the structure of it all, yeah, you know what, maybe she did do the right thing. I don't know. Maybe she's got a better, maybe she's got some kind of support system and she can make this work for her and... If this is truly what she's most passionate about, so be it. Good for her for pursuing it. But I just kind of feel so bad hearing that story. Like I'm imagining her upside down, sliding down the hole. And then it's like cause she said it was like from up from two stories, which is like, what the hell, club lets you climb that tall, that high? How how tall is the ceiling in this venue? Um <laughs> That's a very concerning thing. She falls down, hits her face, and then she gets up and starts running like a stunned horse. Uh, That's, I mean, that's, I, I, okay, that sounded funnier than it should have been. But I mean, it's like that's that's messed up, man. That's really worrisome, and you kind of wonder if she should even be fighting if she's she took that kind of hit. But if she's cleared, I mean, you know, for whatever the medical protocols are worth, fine. But um, you know, it just makes all this looking at the strife and struggle. Makes you appreciate a little more what success she's had so far. Again, I've said this uh, thing I just said this last episode, if not the one before it. I don't think she's destined for a championship level run. I don't think that she's going to be elite in her division. I do think she's capable of having some fun fights, and I think there are some more opponents that she can certainly face. And I would be happy to be proven wrong. But in the meantime, she's doing very well for herself, and you got to respect and be happy for that. You have to be happy for that because as 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 painful – as this road of being a pro fighter can be you got to take these good moments and you got to cherish them and hold on to them because man i mean shit she could the, the opportunity to quit your day job and not have to worry it, to take that leap of faith and then to have it start paying off even if it's not making her millions even if she's probably not even cracking six figures but it's something and i I, I refuse to to accept the possibility that that's not the case, that, that that's just simply uh, something that can be waved aside. I think that's good. And that just made me a little happier for her, knowing that she went through all that bad stuff. And then you look at her recent successes. So good for her.
1: All right. So I did a little research. Apparently, two-story tri- stripper poles are a thing. Uh, they are 20 feet tall. And there's a very famous one from this year. In April here in Texas,
2: uh-huh.
1: a stripper fell off of a two-story pole. She got up and she kept twerking. There uh-huh. is video on TMZ. There is video on YouTube. There is video literally everywhere of this Texas gal falling off a 20-foot pole and just keep going. But I see here there was another one back in 2020. A stripper fell off a 20 foot pole. Now she suffered a broken jaw. Jesus Christ. So, I mean, tw- the- these 20 feet poles are a thing. Wow, no, I, I don't. I don't I'm not
2: surprised no, that they're a I thing. Never, I just want to know where they are.
1: I had no idea. I never knew that, though. I've never mm-hmm. seen one that big, and I've been in some—I've been in some bars, okay—and mm-hmm. I've never seen one that big. They're, they're normally about ten feet, right?
2: I mean, that depends on the venue. I've seen some pretty tall ones, but I don't know that I've seen anything going up twenty feet.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, a standard ceiling is what twelve feet, ten or twelve feet. I'm—I'm going to assume that that's—that's that's the length of a pole generally. But wow, a 20-foot pole, can you imagine falling off of that thing? That is just insane. But anyways, we are going to get to what we promised you. The question at the beginning, what fight from 2022 are we most thankful for? Victor, I'm going to go to you first.
2: OK, so you may remember a couple of years ago, we had the pleasure of watching Joanna Chek and Wiley Zhang put on an absolute classic, what I still think was the fight of the year that year, even though it was super early. You may remember it was the one where Joanna had that uh, lump on her forehead that looked like she was going to give birth to a Brunswick bowling ball when they ran it back in June. However, as even though it wasn't a five round classic. Uh, I was thrilled with what I saw. It was not the super competitive bout that we saw the first time around. We saw Zhang get some better looks early, and we saw her put away Johanna with the spinning uh, forearm, followed by the ground strikes. I think that's probably—I'm going to go with that as being my favorite fight, or the one that I'm most thankful for thus far in the year. Outside of that, a very, very, very close second, Poirier versus Chandler.
1: I picked Matt Schnell versus Sumedergy. And wow. the reason why is because Schnell's comeback was insane. Insane. <laughs> Sumedergy was beating his ass from pillar to fucking post. And that comeback was otherworldly. I don't even know how to describe it. But everything in that fight was just, it was a miracle. I don't know. I just thought it was outstanding. What a great fight. So that was mine. And I also, I ha- I have to tell you one other little aspect of this that really, really gets me every time I see him. Is that Sumaterji is from Tibet. He is the Tibetan eagle. And I don't know why. I just love that fact. So, yep, that's my That's my fight that I'm thankful for this year. I know it's a little obscure and off the radar, but I loved it. So that was me.
2: No, that's perfectly fine, though. I mean, come on. Ain't nobody going to look at that and be like, oh, I don't know why Steffi's going with that. So what? I mean, hey, it's (laughs) what we're thankful for. And we still got a few more fights to uh, go through for the rest of the year, including some scorchers. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool.
1: And we do get the rematch. Of Yuri Prohaska and Glover Teixeira, and that would have been my second pick. I, you know, it was an obvious choice for a lot of people, but for me, it's it's coming in second because I really love this Sumanergy match now fight. But, anyways, that's gonna wrap us up. Obviously, re- we are recording this the day before Thanksgiving. So I'm going to give you guys a belated happy Thanksgiving because by the time you hear this, it will actually be the day after. And you will be suffering your turkey hangover. Mm-hmm. So on behalf of Victor, happy Thanksgiving. Now do me a favor and follow this guy who's going to post a ton of Thanksgiving foodie pics. You can find him on Twitter at Vic M. Rodriguez. You can find him on Instagram, Victor Sinister Rodriguez. Do me a favor, follow Mookie on Twitter at Mookie Alexander and catch him where he works now over at SB Nation's Field Goals website. You can follow the show at Level Change Pod on Twitter, over on Facebook, where facebook.com/levelchangepodcast. And if you listen to the pre-recorded outro, you can hear. All the platforms you can listen to this show and all the other great bloody elbow presents podcasts so until next time please stay safe
0: thank you for tuning in to this bloody elbow presents production to check out more of our content subscribe to our youtube channel which is titled bloody elbow presents we're also on soundcloud Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Overcast, Player FM, and Amazon Music. Just search for Bloody Elbow Presents and you'll get brand new shows throughout the week, including Care Don't Care, The Level Change Podcast, The MMA Vivisection, The 6th Round Post-Fight Show, 6th Round Retro, The MMA Depressed Us, Crooklyn's Corner, Exclusive fighter interviews, show money, guest podcasts, the Hey Not The Face podcast, and radio style play-by-play for every UFC pay-per-view. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Bloody Elbow blog, and as always on BloodyElbow.com.